James 3, I want to read for us verses 3 through 8. That's what we'll look at today. Then a couple Sundays from now, we'll finish off this section, verses 9 through 12. But today, verses 3 through 8. Let me read it. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member. Oh, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. The car fire in Northern California, named for the ranger station where it started, the car ranger station, it's just recently been put under control. In the course of the month that it was burning, it started July 23rd. Over the course of the month that it was burning, it burned over 230,000 acres. Massive amount of land. It destroyed 1,600 homes, cost nearly $200 million to fight it, and left insurance losses of $1.5 billion. By the end of the fire, which again, it was just contained a few weeks ago. By the end of the fire, 40,000 people had to be evacuated. That's much of Redding, California. Redding is the closest city to where it happened. It's, uh, my wife and I have been to that city many times. There's a church that I used to preach at often. The fire department set up shop, the Forest Ranger Fire Department set up shop in the parking lot of this church. 40,000 people from Redding evacuated. 1,600 homes destroyed, as I mentioned. Eight people died including three firefighters. This fire started when a car on the freeway lost a hubcap and the sparks of the hubcap ignited the brush on the side of the highway, which I can't even imagine. I mean, I've seen hubcaps fall off of cars before, but, and I think I've even seen them spark, although I don't know what I've seen in real life and what's in the movie when it comes to that category. But apparently this happened and the sparks went out and the fire started and a massive amount of the state of California was burned. This is what James means when he says what an impressive forest, what a great forest can be destroyed, can be burned down by a tiny spark. And to, in case you're not following the word picture here, he's not talking about the car fire. He's talking about your life. He's talking about your church. He's talking about your world and the power you have to destroy it with a spark from your mouth. You know, the first sin recorded after the fall was a sin of speech. Once Adam and Eve fell into sin, the Lord arrives and asks 
Adam what is exactly going on and Adam's response was to blame his wife. It's a blaspheme against God. It is blame shifting and crediting her. It is, it's bearing false witness. There's so much wrong with what Adam says but notice the freeness that Adam has to sin with his tongue. In fact, view your body as made up of different members. This is the way the scripture speaks of the human body. You have your eyes, you have your ears, your mind, your heart, your feet, your hands, and you have your tongue. It is easier to sin with your tongue than it is with any of the other members of your body. You're, you might have desire to do certain sins, but you can't do it because you don't have the strength to do it. You might want to do a certain thing, like you, you might want to hit somebody, but you're not strong enough to do it. You might want to steal something, but you don't have the opportunity to do it. But listen, there is no such self-control. There is no such physical limitations. There is no such restraint when it comes to your speech. Physically speaking, you can't do whatever you want to, but you can say whatever you want to. You can cause all manner of harm to somebody by your speech. The smallest spark can burn down the largest forest and that's because the tongue, it is the easiest member with which to sin. That leads to this maxim in life. You should never pass up the opportunity to keep your mouth shut. I recognize the irony of what I'm doing right now. But you know what? So does James. That's why James says, James 3 verse 1, not many of you should become teachers because you know, and he goes on to describe sinning with the speech. He doesn't say none of you should become teachers, but not many of you, he says. Rein it in a little bit because of the freeness you have to sin with your speech. Listen, the Bible describes the tongue as wicked, deceitful, perverse, filthy, corrupt, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, and vile. And that is only a partial list. No wonder that God puts your tongue in a cage. Box that thing in, put bars on it. But like a snake, have you noticed how easily your tongue escapes? You can't put a snake in a cage. When I was a kid, I used to catch snakes and bring them into my house and try to put them in an aquarium, which I would do, and I'd stack books on top of the aquarium, and those things always got out. My stepmom loved it. It is so hard to corral a snake. It is so hard to corral your tongue. And that's why there's a long section here in the middle of the book of James devoted to getting you to understand how serious of an issue this is. If the book of James is written to get you to see the authenticity of your faith, which it is, chapter one has you look at the way God uses trials in your life. Do you respond to trials uh, receiving them as God sanctifying you? Then your faith is authentic. Do you respond to trials fighting against God? Then you have reason to question your faith. In chapter two, you look at how you're living out your faith. Does your faith have works? If yes, you have reason to have confidence in your faith. If your faith does not have works, you do not have reason to have confidence in your faith. And now he's moved in chapter three to your speech. Does your speech represent somebody who is striving for sanctification then take confidence in it? 
Or does your speech represent an out of control train, the poison of vipers? And that's why this is doing, that's what this is doing right here in the book of James. In fact, James mentions the tongue in every single chapter of this letter. It's a recurring theme. Beginning in chapter one, verse 19, he says, you better be quick to hear and slow to speak. And then chapter one, verse 27, he says, if you think you're religious but you can't bridle your tongue, then your religion is worthless. Then in chapter two, look at how you pass judgment on other people based upon your speech. And then in chapter three, reign in your tongue. So let me give you an outline this morning to better get our mind around what's going on here in chapter three. Let me give you three purifying steps to serve Jesus with your tongue. Three purifying steps to serve the Lord with your speech. How to present your tongue as a servant to Christ. Three steps. You follow these three steps and you will make significant progress in going to war with your tongue. First, identify its treason. Identify its treason. Look again at verse eight. No human being can tame the tongue. This is your mission impossible that's been handed to you. Your mission, if you choose to accept it, is to get your speech under control. But it is an impossible mission because nobody can do this. Now, that doesn't mean give up and ignore the seven verses before this. It means no person can do this in their own strength, of course. But verse two lets you know that if anybody can control their speech, they are a mature believer. And that's because with the Holy Spirit working in and sanctifying you and regenerating your heart, there is a battle to be had. And you can grow in spiritual maturity through how you wrangle your speech. Understand, as I said earlier, all your members used to love to serve you. You're the king of your body. You're the captain of your ship. Your mind, your heart, your hands, your feet, your tongue, your eyes, your ears, they all loved serving you. And you, by the way, were a slave to sin. You were owned by sin. And so really all the members of your body, all the, in their service to you, they were actually serving sin. And then you came to faith in Christ. And when you came to faith in Christ, your members are now presenting themselves as obedient servants to their new king. You are no longer the king of your life, but the Lord Jesus is the king of your life. And he, by the way, is the rightful king. He was always meant to be king, but you and your sin have banished him and served all your sin with your, all your members. But now the rightful king is back and he is on the throne and it's your job to kind of corral your members and get them to serve their new rightful king. It's like Lord of the Rings, except in your own body. <laughs> and as you're getting your members to serve the rightful king, you can have such effect. Isaiah 26 talks about how you can serve God with your mind. Jeremiah 32, how you're serving God with your heart. Romans 9, how you're serving God with your feet by taking the gospel into the world. Uh, there's much to say in the New Testament about serving God with your hands, your work. Uh, Job makes a covenant with his eyes so he can serve God with his eyes. James 1 verse 19 talks about presenting your ears as servants to God. But it's the tongue that holds out, isn't it? That tongue does not want to do what it's told. It doesn't want to serve your new master. And that's because the tongue goes down and connects to your heart. The Bible talks about that. I know biologically it doesn't, but you know what I mean. 
The tongue goes down and connects to your heart. You can see into your heart. It, the tongue uniquely defines you because it shows people what you really like by how you're speaking. It shows what's in your heart. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we'll talk more about that at the end of James 3, except for now, understand that as you speak, it's revealing who you are. Your heart is regenerate. Your heart is trying to get your tongue under control, but your tongue is fighting against it. It doesn't want to be told what to do. Your tongue has a mind of its own. It says whatever it wants to say. But notice that because you've been converted to Christ, you have great power in your tongue also. 2 Corinthians 6, I believe it's verse 7, says that with your new life, you can use your tongue as a weapon of righteousness if you present it to God that your tongue can build people up. It can speak life, not in the charismatic, you know, I, I claim it kind of sense, but your tongue can speak life by encouraging people in Christ, by causing people to be more conformed to Christ, by finding somebody discouraged and building them up, by pointing people to Christ. That's how your tongue can serve Christ. But man, your tongue is like a coiled snake. And you don't know if it's gonna pounce this way or that. In any kind of given conversation, you don't know if your speech is gonna be used for good or evil. And I'm talking in, in a very real sense. You're talking to somebody about meaningless things, about the weather, about the Redskins, about your job, about your yard, which is all fine to talk about. I mean, we, when you're having conversations with people like that, don't feel like you're wasting your time. It's fine to talk about the world. It's fine to talk about your life. I mean, Ecclesiastes presents this world as meaningless, but we find our meaning by how we live here. So talk to your friends and your neighbors about the weather and about cars. Go ahead. But even in that very morally neutral, meaningless kind of conversation, your tongue is there. And at any moment, it can be used for great good. At any moment, it can come out of its cage and it can build someone up in Christ. At any moment, it can encourage someone. At any moment, it could pray for someone. At any moment, it could give one of your children a kind of compliment that they will remember the rest of their life. And also, at any moment, it can come out of its cage and it can send a lie that will tear someone down. It can send gossip that will ruin someone. It can say something true designed with bad motives. Or it could tear one of your children down. The kind of put down that they will remember the rest of their life. And that's at any moment. And that's when you're just sitting there minding your own business talking about the weather. <laughs> you have to be aware that your tongue is treasonous, it is treacherous, and it wants to do harm. You have a rebellion on your hands. One of the members of your body does not want to submit to its new king. And you've got to get it under control. Sometimes you're in a conversation with someone and you think, oh, I don't know if I should say this or not. I don't know if this is good or bad. My tongue wants to say it, but my conscience tells me no. And you treat it as if your tongue and your conscience are both equal witnesses, right? They're both two witnesses. Do I believe my tongue or my conscience? I don't know, it's a close call. No, never believe the tongue. It's betraying you. It's betraying you. Because once it gets out, it's not coming back. It's not like a sword. You can unsheath the sword and not strike put it back. It's not like a firearm. You can draw your firearm and not fire it, holster it up again. No harm, no foul. <laughs> Speech is not like that. Once that arrow is shot, it is gone. It is not coming back. Have you ever tried to recall an email? 
the quickest way to get somebody to read an email, and I'm not very good at reading emails. I sometimes go a while without reading it. But the quickest way to get somebody to read an email, recall it. What was that person saying? And that's the way speech works, is launched out. So first, identify its treason. Second, fear its poison. Identify its treason and secondly, fear its poison. Understand that when that arrow is launched, it is a poison-tipped arrow. It wants to strike the victim and slowly kill it. And by the way, you get to make your getaway. That's what makes the tongue so potent. You can shoot the arrow, you can say the lie, or even it's not a lie. You can say something true designed to tear somebody down and then you leave the scene. You get in your car and go home. And yet the lie starts making its way around, told from person to person to person, and it finally does its damage. It finally claims its victim, and you are nowhere to be seen. You've dusted for fingerprints and everything. No one will trace that back to you. I think that's why there's so much snake language in these verses here, three through eight. There's all kinds of imagery about snakes in here. It's a restless evil. This is a snake phrase, full of deadly poison. It's coiled, ready to pounce. And I'm sure many of you are afraid of snakes. I remember my previous church, the executive pastor brought in a corn snake. He had a pet corn snake for a staff chapel for staff show and tell. And he, he's just got his box up there and he opens up the box and there's a corn snake. And in the front row was this lady named Kathleen Swanson. I hope she's listening. And just all that's left in the front row is a puff of smoke, like Wiley Coyote, Roadrunner style, just poof. <laughs> Door swings open. Rick puts the snake back in the box, Pastor Rick tells me, go, go, go bring Kathleen back. The snake's in the box. I go looking for Kathleen. She's gone. Her car's gone. <laughs> she went home. I mean, this day is over. <laughs> People are afraid of snakes. I think some of it's irrational fear. And I mean, I like catching snakes outside. I caught one yesterday. I like bringing it to my girls to show them. I mean, these snakes aren't poisonous. Even a big black snake that's poisonous. Come on, you can grab the thing. And I like bringing it into the house to show the three girls. One of my girls does not like the snake in the house. It's just, I'm not going to say which one of the girls, but the, my three daughters love it. <laughs> now you don't want a snake in your house. You learned that lesson when you were a kid. Don't bring snakes in your house, but man, they're fun to hold. And, but people are afraid of them because you don't know where they're going to go. And in the same way, you don't know what's going to happen to that poison. If it bites you, that poison goes through your body, courses up your arms, gets to your heart, kidneys, your liver. I mean, there's some snakes. Think of the snakes and different kind of mamba snakes in Africa. They'll bite their prey, and then they'll just let it go and let their prey go. And the snake doesn't even chase. It just smells its own venom. And it'll come after a while, track down and lets it get away and dies. That's the way the tongue works. You think that the worst sins are drunkenness or adultery? I mean, that can affect just a small number of people. Can ruin your family for sure. Ruin your legacy for sure. But think of the danger that comes from the tongue. How great a forest can be set ablaze by such a small fire. This is why James goes on to say, verse six, the tongue is a fire. In case you're not getting the word picture, James says, the tongue is the fire. <laughs> you're not tracking here? It's the tongue. 
itself is fire. It's a world, James says, a world of unrighteousness. And that word for world, the Greek word is cosmos there. It doesn't mean you know, the people of the world that you're supposed to love. What this word here means, cosmos, it's the world system. Cosmos is this powerful Greek word. It means all the structure, the currency, the ethics, the morality, the political apparatus, the laws. All of society is a way you could translate. That's the whole course of civilization. That's what this word means. And James says, your tongue is a world unto itself. It has its own laws. It has its own currency. It has its own list of right and wrongs. It has its own structure. Your tongue is its own world. And what kind of world is it? It is a world of unrighteousness. It does what it wants to do. In fact, it is so wicked. It's unique among our members. Notice what it says in verse six. It stands among our members. It's set among our members. Between your feet and your hands and your heart and your mind, your tongue, your eyes, your ears, the tongue is what stands out. And it stains, the middle of verse six, the whole body. It corrupts the whole being. And it sets on fire the entire course of life. There's that word world again, cosmos. The whole system of your life will be burned down by your tongue. Who burns down their own house? But you do it every time you speak something untrue. And you don't know which arrow is going to come back to burn down your house, but that's what happens. You tell a lie, you tell a gossip, you violate somebody's confidence, you even say something true but with bad motives designed to to harm the person and it's going to end up, it's the boomerang. It's gonna come back and hit you. It's going to burn down your own house. And that's James's point here. It's a world of unrighteousness but it comes back to you. And itself, it is set on fire by hell, the end of verse six says. That word hell, it's the Greek word Gehenna. That word comes from the Old Testament where the Molech, the Molech worship, there were the bull gods that had their arms outstretched and people would take their infants and sacrifice them on the arms of Molech. Molech heated in the flame and the fire and it burned their infants there. And that's what this word meant. The Jews took that word and applied it to their garbage heap outside of Jerusalem, which you can still see today if you go to Israel. And that, that outside, outside of, across the little creek there, that hill was Gehenna and it's where they burned their garbage. And they took that word because it had just the hideousness of the infant sacrifices associated with it. And that's what they described the place they burned their rubbish. So it's a word that means the worst of infant sacrifice combined with the town garbage dump on fire. That's what this word is. You can't find a worse word. And James says, you with your speech are doing that to your life. It's not talking eschatological hell, like end times hell. It's not talking about if you die apart from Christ, you're sent to eternal judgment, which you are, but that's not what this verse is about. This is present tense. Right now, at this moment, your tongue is burning your life in Gehenna. It's on fire right now. The fires of the horrors of sin are burning down your house. There's a Jewish saying that gossip kills three people at once, the one speaking, the one listening, and the subject. And that's what's meant by this. This is why Job says this, Job, a righteous person, his friends are accusing him of sin, and Job is trying to defend himself. Job 9, verse 20, he says, even if I am blameless, my tongue would prove me perverse. Though I am righteous, my tongue would condemn me. And Job, what's Job saying? It's not that he's sinless, but Job's saying, I am righteous, 
I am leading a godly life. These afflictions are not to punish me for some kind of secret sin. And his friends are saying, who can testify to that? And Job says, I can't even call my own tongue to testify of that. Because who knows what it would say. Isaiah 6, verse 5, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the middle of people with unclean lips. The angel, Yahweh through the angel, is calling Isaiah to be the mouthpiece to confront their people and their sin. And Isaiah says, I can't do it because you know how I talk. David, we looked at this last week, Psalm 39, verse one, says, I will guard my ways so I will not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth as with a muzzle. David says, I gotta rein this in. That's the power of speech. When I was single, I lived with a bunch of other single guys and I, there's one particular night I had a flight to go catch for a soccer game and I went to grab my soccer bag. It's always ready to go so I can get out and go catch the, my flight. Only now I go to get my bag and all my soccer stuff is there on the floor, but no bag. So I start asking my roommates, where's, where's my bag? And one of my roommates says, Putman took it. He took it camping with him. Putman was one of my roommates. Putman took it camping and I thought, oh, that's just something Putman would do is take my bag and now I gotta, what am I gonna do? I end up getting a trash bag and putting all of my soccer stuff in a trash bag, going to the airport, trying to check that, what a mess. Big black trash bag. It was before 9-11, so it wasn't as suspicious as it was, would be now, but it still was un, unnerving. And I get back, and I got all weekend to think, oh, what is my right revenge for this? And I get back, and Putman had these Star Wars figurines that he liked so much. There was one particular one, a Darth Vader one, and I took it out of its box, and we had a fish tank. I planted it in the middle of the fish tank. So when he got back, he would open up the front door and there would be his Darth Vader staring at him from the fish tank. And he would know that it's because he took my soccer bag. Some of you have too high of a view of Star Wars figures. Let it go, okay? They're, they're, <laughs> they're toys. Paul says when I was a child, I had childish toys and I grew up and I put him behind me. I was actually helping him, okay? Well, he comes home and sees the Darth Vader in the fish tank and I had a job at the time where I had to wear ties every day, so he responded to this by taking all of my ties and putting them in the fish tank. <laughs> Many of the fish survived, you should know that. And then, the next day, my stepbrother brings my soccer bag back that he had borrowed for the weekends. I looked at Jeremy and Putman and said, sorry, I guess. <laughs> a valuable lesson was learned. I mean, it's a humorous story about the power of just a different villainous roommate saying something untrue that causes strife, but sometimes there's like real world consequences beyond a Darth Vader toy. You remember when the king of Ammon died? The king of Israel sent some mourners to his funeral and they came. The new king of Ammon, the former prince, he doesn't know what he's doing, but his advisors say, hey, these Israelites that are coming to the funeral, these, these mourners, there's this delegation, they look like military people. They're probably here to overthrow our country. In fact, they were talking about how they're gonna overthrow our country. This is an attack. The prince doesn't know any better. I mean, these are lies. They're anti-Semitic lies told by the Ammonite advisors to their king, and the king was gullible enough to believe the lie. So remember, he assaults them, and at the, the funeral has the Israelite mourners evicted, humiliated. 
the king of Israel hears about this. And I mean, there's no rational reason to do that unless the Ammonites are planning on attacking Israel anyway. I mean, that would be the only reason a king would do that. I mean, obviously the king of Israel didn't know the lie behind it. He, didn't, he wasn't operating in a world where there were lies told. He thought it didn't cross his mind. So he thinks we've got to strike first. We've got to defend our, our nation. So he musters his arm and he goes to attack. The Ammonites had a treaty with Syria. The Syrians muster their army to defend the Ammonites. The war starts, the battle starts up just east of the Sea of Galilee. The Ammonites and the Syrians fighting the Israelites, the Syrians find out that this started based on lies. And once they hear that the battle started based upon the lies of the Ammonites, the Syrians tried to retreat. The Israelites saw the Syrians retreating and they pursued, thinking this is our chance to strike them down. Again, not understanding that it was a lie that started it and the Syrians were retreating. And the, the Israelites pursued, they forgot about the Ammonites and pursued all the way into Syria. They killed 40,000 soldiers. Hugely significant military loss for the Syrians. 40,000 Syrians died, 700 Ammonites died. And they're the ones that started it. That's the power of the poison in your tongue. And that's not the Ammonite tongue, that's your tongue that can burn your own house down. So, first, identify the tongue's treason. Second, fear its poison. Thirdly, quash its rebellion. If you don't like the word quash, how about this one? Squash. (laughs) Or this, suppress. Or extinguish. Or stifle it. Use whatever word you want to, but get it under control. Know that your tongue is rebelling with poison and you've got to rein it back in. What's the best way to rein it back in? Close your mouth. (laughs) Proverbs 17, verse 28. Even a fool is considered wise if he keeps silent. (laughs) Remember this at your next, you know, group meeting at work. Those you work with you will think you're so smart if you are just so quiet. (laughs) Why is that? Because it's the nature of the tongue. It doesn't make its own decisions. It's evil, it's villainous, and it wants to do what it wants to do. We'll talk more about this in the last part of James in a couple weeks when we get back to it. But for now, just understand that your tongue speaks for you because it represents who you are, what's going on in your heart. So if you don't rein it in, it begins to be the grounds of questioning the sincerity of your faith. If you find yourself loving gossip, unable to control your swearing, uh, unable to stop talking about others and tearing other people down, then you need to check your heart and see what exactly is going on in your heart. This is the kind of thing that indicates heart disease. I don't know how pervasive it is in your life, but if your heart is severely diseased, it's a concern for you when it comes to your faith. Think about all the other things you can control. I mean, verse seven, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. Last week at school, my girls did a presentation on their favorite animal and we were talking and what's in their mind is how incredible it was when they went to SeaWorld, they saw killer whales tamed. You know, they've seen the YouTube videos of the killer whales eating seals, those are impressive. When they go to SeaWorld and they see somebody riding on top of a killer whale, can you believe it? It's incredible. 
the lions. You can tame lions. We went to the last of the uh, Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus when it was in D.C. at the Ryzen Center not too long ago. It was their, you know, their last show. They shut it down afterwards. And if you go there, you, we got to see the lions jumping through the flaming hoops and you know, dancing on the, the stands. And you can kind of tell why they're shutting the circus down because those lions were old lions. <laughs> Out there with little lion walkers moving around. So <laughs> thing needed to be shut down. But it was still impressive, all those lions in the cage and dancing. It's sobering to think about the fact it is easier to train a killer whale or a lion than it is to train a Christian to hold his tongue. This is why it's mission impossible. Because there's a rebellion on your hands in your mouth. But it is a mission that you can do with the help of the Holy Spirit. This is verse three. If you can put a bit into the mouth of a horse so it obeys us, you can steer its whole body as well. In other words, if you can reign in your speech, you can reign in the rest of your life. I mean, look at the ships of the sea. They're so large and they're driven by such a strong wind. Yet the pilot just moves his finger back and forth and the thing can do donuts. I mean, an aircraft carrier can do donuts. A big donut, but it can do it. Just by the moving of the, the finger, the pressing of the button, the tilting of the wheel, he won't even break a sweat steering that thing. What can you do in your life if you can restrain your speech? Failure to do it, James says, will burn your life down. Think about the lies that were told about John the Baptist. People lied to Herod about John the Baptist and that's a factor in why John the Baptist was martyred. Or with Jesus. They threw all kinds of lies at Jesus just to see what would stick. Their accusation of Jesus didn't even make sense. Oh, they said there is no king but Caesar and they said that he's the king. Well, which is it? They said he should pay, we should pay our taxes to the Romans. Oh, oh, he said we shouldn't pay taxes. They lied about him and lied about him. And then when he comes before Pilate, it's the lies that stick. It's the lies that give Pilate justification for the crucifixion of Christ. At the end of the book of Acts, the Jews back in Jerusalem again accused Paul of trying to bring Gentiles into the temple. And they riot. They beat Paul nearly to death. It was Roman uh, officers that happened to be passing by that rescued Paul and kept him from being killed. But they threw him in prison because of the lies about him. Paul spent two years in prison because of those lies. Or Stephen, earlier on in the book of Acts. It was lies about him. They said that, he, that Stephen said blaspheme Moses. That was, Stephen was a blasphemer. That led to his death. It's not confined to the Bible. Of course, this is present day stuff. My family and I just finished going through Hudson Taylor's biography. An incredible scene in there. He's deep in China. He's in the city that has never had Western influence before, never had medicine in any real sense of the word before, never had a Christian presence before. And he had gotten a hospital built there. He was fighting all kinds of diseases there. He had medicine. He, it was incredible what was happening there and he had also started Bible studies. And there were people that were getting saved and, but then rumors started in the town that they were kidnapping babies and cannibalizing them. And one of the darkest moments of Taylor's life, the 
crowd came to the hospital and stormed the gate, came to their house. They destroyed the hospital, chased them down at their house. There were several missionary families there. They're all trying to scatter. Taylor has to leave his family in hiding and go out with one of the other guys. It's night. There's no electricity. They're cutting through fields. The mob is chasing them, doesn't know where they're going. They try to get to the mayor's house, the satrap's house, to beg for that he would stop this. They just beat the mob to the, the mayor's house. They throw themselves at the mayor's feet and beg him to stop the mob. And the, the mayor, who'd been helped by the medicine from the hospital, he looks at him with sympathy and Taylor says, we're not cannibals. And the mayor asks him, so what do you do with the babies you steal? It hadn't even occurred to the mayor that the whole thing was a lie. They're not stealing babies. The result was that his mission work in China was put back like a decade. That city lost their hospital, lost their Christian presence. They had to retreat and go in other directions. Huge, significant loss in that place. And from an earthly perspective, even for the advancement of the gospel because of the lies of people. With your speech, this is not stories about missionaries. It's not stories about Paul and Stephen and Jesus and John. With your speech, you have the power to destroy the lives that are around you. But you also have the power to advance the gospel around you by speaking clearly about Christ. Verse two says, if anyone can control his speech, he's a mature person. It's rendered in the ESV, he's a perfect person. That's fine, because think of Christ. He's our perfect model. He controlled his speech perfectly. So he becomes the model for us to how to use our tongues to be servants of God. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us speech to glorify you. You're the God of speech. You made the world by speech. So Lord, help us honor you with speech. We pray that you would use our language this week, you'd use our tongues this week to praise you, to witness to you, to encourage others in you, and to direct others towards you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.